The strangest thing that happened is we survived to the fourth generation. And they've done studies that say that the second generation, there's a 50% chance of it making it to the second generation. There's like a six to 10% chance of making it to the third generation. So that we've made it to the third, going on the fourth or going on the fifth. It's quite remarkable. It really is almost miraculous. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time, we enjoyed a conversation with theologian and author Mary Lane Potter. Perpetually in search of a closer relationship with the divine, Mary explained that she's always been drawn to the ocean. Well, today, we will journey to one of the Pacific Northwest's most fascinating saltwater realms, the San Juan Islands. Comprised of 172 named islands and reefs, our destination there is my family's perennial favorite, Orcas Island. It's part of the San Juan Archipelago and covers about 57 square miles. It's located near the Canadian border, just below Boundary Pass, and is accessible via the Washington State Ferry System. Today we'll explore the culture of this island. Our guide is a fourth-generation owner of a little inn on acreage at the outskirts of the village of East Sound. This place is comprised of woodlands, farmlands, and fruit orchards. Here, the inn's 16 rustic cottages dot an eight-mile stretch of sandy beach. And the business has been family-owned and operated since 1932. So this year, they celebrate their 90th anniversary. Like much of life on Orcas Island, change comes more slowly than on the mainland. Some of the cabins here were built during the Great Depression, and many of these are still in use today. And the people change less frequently, too. Some of the inn's guests return year after year, some across multiple generations. So today we'll explore how a place created by and for one family has evolved around a distinct ethos, one in which both guests and workers become part of this family. We'll also get to listen to some Pacific Northwest Island lore from someone whose family has maintained a place removed and isolated from the mainland where such stories get created and retold across generations. And finally, whether you're a baby boomer who grew up with TV in the house or a digital native for whom a Wi-Fi connection seems essential, today we'll get to experience what can open up in life without access to these modern conveniences. And stick around at the end of today's podcast, you'll learn how you can come to this place and be a guest too. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guest today, Craig Gibson, fourth-generation owner and president of Gibson's North Beach Inn, or NBI, in East Sound on Orcas Island. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. So I shared with you that I personally have come to the North Beach Inn for almost 20 years now. Um, I was just kind of curious if you can just kind of bring us back to the very beginning when your family came to acquire it. Yeah, to get to the very beginning, you probably need to follow us from immigrating from Canada in uh, 1889, my family came to Seattle. That would be my great-grandparents and their eight children. And they moved here. They lived and worked here, went to school here in the 90s, 1890s. And two of my uncles, my older two great-uncles, started to work for Robert Moran in the shipbuilding 
yards down on Union Bay. And my uncle James helped run businesses and things like that, but he was very interested in farming. And when he started to have health issues in the 1910, 1911, something like that, he started to think about, you know, where could I go? Where could I retire? Where I could, you know, live out my dream of being a farmer? And because he'd worked for Robert Moran and they had a personal relationship, we still have some letters that are from Moran, he looked at Orcas Island. Presumably he went to visit uh, the Morans at the mansion. So he found a place. It was an orchard. Um, it was being run by Al Hill, homesteader, and the Seattle Fruit Company owned parts of the property. So he bought that from them, started out as an orchard, a farm. He was excited about raising pigs and cattle. And we've got some old receipts and some letters and notes from him from back then that talk about, you know, I got this animal. And I think he started some of the the farmer organizations on the island originally. He was a pretty active person. At that time, how did you actually get to the island? Yeah, they had mailboats that you'd get on. I don't know that they had car ferries, particularly back then. Um, When we started out, we had wagons, right, that we were doing farm work with. We have some neat old pictures of our, what I, what I told my wife, our original heavy equipment, big farm horses, not tractors. So it was a different time. So then this was your great uncle. And so he acquired it and then put it into use, into farming. And mm-hmm. kind of what did he plant? And obviously he raised animals and... Yeah, they did some wheat and they did hay, of course, to support the animals. But mainly the income came from the fruit orchard, I believe. And in the early part of the 19th century, the fruit orchards in the San Juans were a big deal. They hadn't started their irrigation on the east side of the state at that point. And so they sold a lot of apples, uh, different fruits. We also have some pears and things like that. It never occurred to me. I I know that the Columbia River, when it was dammed, and that, that created a massive fruit industry. But actually, prior to that... Probably it was Western Washington that supplied yeah. Seattle. Yeah, and Orcas has kind of a unique environment. Um, it's in the rain shadow. It gets more sun than some of the areas around it. So it's actually kind of fun to go there in the spring and fall and look around, and there's clouds all around you on the, the horizon over Bellingham and you know up, up in Canada, and, and we've got sun. Okay. So it's kind of fun. Well, at Moran State Park, when you go up to the very pinnacle there, you can see that. I mean, that's one of the remarkable yeah. things on the island. So Moran, for our listeners that aren't familiar even with that name, can you tell us a little bit about his significance to Seattle? Yeah, and Robert Moran, I, I would love to read a history on him at some point, but he was um, one of the movers and shakers in Seattle, kind of a big deal. He was mayor for a while. I think he was maybe involved with the Seattle Fire or something. He, he helped with the reconstruction. But he had a shipyard. He had a couple brothers he was very intimate on a business level with, and they, they did a lot of work. And so they built a shipyard on Lake Union. And sort of the pinnacle, to my understanding, of their effort was a battleship for the U.S. Navy. It's a USS Nebraska. And it was part of the Great White Fleet that uh, Teddy Roosevelt sent around the world to kind of say, hey, America, here we are. So my two uncles, uh, my uncle James, who bought the property, and my great-uncle Will, uh, were involved with that project. So pigs, cattle, 
apple orchards, and then hospitality. How did your family transition from agriculture into an inn? Well, my understanding is the family is land-rich, money-poor, whatever that word is. And so we've kind of always been that way. And so, like, my grandparents had multiple jobs. Well, my uncle tried multiple different things, and, and his brothers did as well. We have a postcard from 1916 where we were called North Beach Farm, and we're actually a resort listed in some of the the resort flyers, bulletins from the day. So really, we started in the teens. We didn't really start in 32. We just The name came up in 32 for North Beach Inn. Um, so we were renting tent cabins, and what my Aunt Mary told me is that we had tent cabins in the orchard under the trees, and I know we also had tent cabins on the beach. And so my great-grandmother evidently helped cook and support that. So the beach is a pretty big drop down from the orchards above. So can you walk us through entering the property from East Sound and this going through the forest and just kind of paint a picture for our listeners who haven't been there? Yeah. Yeah, if you come to visit, you you get off the ferry and you drive through the, you know, the woods and fields and you come to East Sound, which is kind of a bustling small town. Uh, and then there's an airport as well, uh, just to the north of it. Well, you take a left, you go west up a hill and you come to our property. Our property is about 100 acres, and it's in the shape of a long L. And it, it kind of gives you the feeling of stepping back into time, stepping away from civilization, because we have 50 acres of designated forest land that you first drive through. And so you drive further and further down this long, long driveway. I think it's about three quarters of a mile until you get to the lodge. So you drive through the woods, and then you drive through the fields and the orchards, and there's the cows and the goats. And then you drive down the hill, and the, the geography of the property is to the west. There's a very steep bank, very steep hill, and you go far enough to the east, and it's very gradual. So the road, though, goes down the steep part, and it goes along the edge of the hill. And you just pop out at the bottom, and there's an old boat shed that's now a woodshed, and you start to see the, the vista of the beach and the islands out there. And so when you turn into the road originally, you have no idea that this property abuts the water, but it really does, and it's it's kind of dramatic when you drive down. We've had people drive off the road I, when I they come about that. that. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty because <laughs> they. Uh, they, well, when they come around that last corner and they see the view, they've driven off the road because they look at the view, they get captivated by it. And then in the boat shed, I think there's a bunch of old boats too. Do you know anything about those? Mm -hmm. Old Rhinel boats, and I think they're about 16-footers, 18-footers. We used to rent those uh, early on. Basically, if you were a beach resort on Orcas Island, you had to have beach cabins, you had to have boats, you had to have fishing poles, and you had to have motors, and so we and a dock. And so we tried to keep up with that for years and compete with people like West Beach Resort. But we really don't have the location for it. We're open to uh, the Strait of Georgia and some of the winds and waves that come in there are pretty tremendous. When I was younger, my role was boat boy, which I interpreted as find the boats and put the dock back together after the storms. So you're down there now finally at the beach, and can you now paint a picture of what you see? To me, it's quite dramatic because you're looking into another country. 
at least that's my fantasy that we're seeing into Canada. But kind of what's the panorama that you get to enjoy at, down at the beach? Yeah, we face north-northwest. And so we get really dramatic summer sunsets. Winter, you get some kind of glow, but it's really the summer that's pretty amazing. To the, the west, you see the Canadian San Juans. Uh, they like to call it the Gulf Islands. I think they get insulted if you call them the San Juans. But, um, and then at panoramas from those, you see the Strait of Georgia, and it goes way up, way past Vancouver. You can see the lights of the Vancouver shipping wharfs and things like that. You can see ski resorts. I think you can see about three ski resorts on the mountains. It just fades into the distance, literally. You can't see the mountains out there. You keep going east, and you see... Pedos Island, Susha Island, Mesha Island, those are the northernmost parks, northwesternmost parks in Washington State. So those are pretty cool places to go. And then you go further and you see Ferndale, way, way off to the, the east. Let's talk a little bit kind of how the hospitality and the inn, you know, evolved. Yeah. So my great grandparents, my great grandfather died in I think 1916 or something. And then my great uncle James uh, had consumption and he died in about 24. But there were so many family members who had lived up there, various great uncles or my grandparents, the next person in line just took it over, which is actually what's occurring with our family today. It seems atypical that a family business becomes multi-generational, right? I mean, maybe it was at one time, but sort of not into the modern era. So it, any... I think it had something to do with how close my great uncles and aunts were. Uh, I've got lots of postcards and writings back and forth where they're teasing each other and very close-knit family. And I don't know if it was from Scottish heritage or or what exactly, but that that was, I think, a key to it, that when one family member could no longer keep it going, the next one would step in. And I think they really identified early on as this piece of land was our homestead. You know, by the time your your parents start dying there and your nieces and nephews start being born on the property or right nearby, you start to really identify with it. And I think that's still in our family's kind of ethos. But when my great uncle James died in the 20s, he gave it to my great uncle John. And my great uncle John was a merchant marine and he traveled all over the world through the merchant marine. He was in both world wars and he took on not so much operating it as funding it. So he had to go off and bring the money back in. And my grandfather Edward and my grandmother Edna, they started running the operation. So we were North Beach Farm from sometime in the teens until 1932. And then my grandmother Edna and my grandfather Ed took over and, and named it North Beach Tavern. And that's kind of a, a family joke is that we started off as a tavern and we had to convert to an inn because people were misinterpreting tavern. In Scotland, a, a tavern has a different significance. Yeah. It, Evidently, it was my grandmother Edna's dream to have something that replicated an old Scottish inn, old Scottish tavern, and so you could go there for meals and you could go there for drink and to stay. 
And that, that was what her dream. And so she evidently had a lot to do with the design of the lodge, which is kind of an iconic building that is a throwback sort of building. And the, the beach cabins, the original ones, are this old craftsman-style English country sort of look. So food was served. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Originally, the cabins were so small, they didn't have kitchens on them. And um, I have some pictures of the before and after, and it's kind of funny how little they were. So people, everybody would come down to the, the lodge for their meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So women have been crucial to the survival and growth of the North Beach Inn. So tell us about these women. Yeah, it would have started off with my great-grandmother, who was helping with serving meals to guests. I don't know a whole lot about her. She was very Scottish. My uh, Aunt Mary told me it was hard to understand her because her her Scottish brogue was so thick. Um, The next would be Edna, my grandmother. And basically, once they got the business going, she took it over. If you look at some of these flyers and things, it's contact Edna Gibson. So she took it over. She ran it and had multiple jobs. And she ran it, wow, from 1932 until her death in 1968. Wow. Yeah, she was still running it into her 70s. Very independent, very strong-willed woman. Um, But my grandfather passed away in the 50s, kind of a young age, and left her with the business. Also left her with the bills, because the business couldn't support that much property. And so she got nominated to take over as postmaster. And at that point, women weren't accepted as postmasters. I think there, there were women postmasters, but it was unique. And after some struggle, she was appointed postmaster. And so when you talk to old island families, they remember Edma as the postmaster wow. because that was a fairly high profile position. So she would do that and also run the inn. And so she'd get up early in the morning, make breakfast, go to the post office, sort the mail, get things in order at lunch, run home, and prepare for dinner. And then she'd go back to the post office and run the post office, come home, make dinner. This is for the guests? Yeah, for yeah. the guests. And her family. So yeah, dozens and dozens of people. I, I don't know where she got the energy from. Um, <laughs> she was a pretty amazing person. Wow. So tell us about other women that have been involved in... Running the yeah, end. and so after that, then it would have been my Aunt Sally, so that's Sarah Seagrave, and she took over, and she came up every summer. Her family lived in New Mexico, and she'd come up every summer and just run the whole place, pretty much single-handed because my dad was working on the mainland and my other aunt, my Aunt Mary, was working elsewhere. Um, in 85, 86, my Aunt Mary retired and came up and started to help until 2004, I think. And um, definitely have to, to give a nod to my own mother. My mother's still alive. Um, she supported my dad, who was president since my grandma, Edna, died in 68. But my mom was always there to support him. So I hear a theme here, which is this has not been a moneymaker not consistently, and that you've had to be very limber for the last 100 years just to keep the business and the land yeah. in the family. Part of that is our focus. It goes back to 
who we are and what we see the place as, and we see the place as a home and guests as guests to the family home. Where did that come from, that ethos? I think just because it's been in the family so long, right? And and we've had so many family members who've worked for us. My three boys work for us. And obviously, if we'd wanted to make money, we would have sold it. I think many of our competitors are gone because that's the way to make money. But sure. we didn't want to do that. And we wanted to grow slowly so that we don't damage the ethos. Um, it hasn't changed much. understand your ethos and kind of why you do things the way that you do. But what is the feedback from guests or what insights do you have, why that's important for the guests to keep coming? Yeah, so we have comment cards that that people fill out and so many of them say, keep it the same, keep it the same. When we ask, you know, what would you like to see different? Nothing, keep it the same. You know, we're rustic, so there's always issues with, you know, there's there's bugs outside and there's pine needles outside and, and things like that. But from 1932 when you had a whole different way of doing things until now when we're putting in a brand new sewer system that's state-of-the-art for somebody like us yeah Yeah. I mean that's really a good window into how long we've kept the business and how some things have stayed the same but we've you know upgraded other things so the booking log is always fascinating for me it was intimidating, you know, that wonderful office. I remember Mary yeah. sitting there and just this huge book. Right. You know, and it was all handwritten in ink pen, who was staying and... Yeah, and that's kind of an old way of having guests register. We used to sign in when you'd register and say your name and where you lived and your car's number or whatever. And we just kept that going because it was so neat because we've been doing it for so long and we had books from the 30s, 1932, we have the original book. It just felt like the right thing to do. And so we'll have guests who haven't been there for 20 years or something, and they'll come back and they say, yeah, we stayed here 20 years ago. And then who's in the office can pull out the book and show them where they were, and they'll take a picture of it. Wow. So one of the features here of this place is that there's really bad cell coverage, right? (laughs) But more importantly, you've and the family, you know, over the years have made a conscious decision to not have TV sets, Mm -hmm. right? That was a big thing, right, Mm -hmm. for 50 years, and to not have Wi-Fi networks and so forth. I was actually there, and I was trying to get some work done, and I contacted the office, and they sent me a very curt thing that we don't have a Wi-Fi network, we don't have a code, and our guests want to keep it that way, but there are other things for you to enjoy here. And I thought it was kind of an aggressively wonderful communication to kind of reset my expectations about where I was and why I came, which was really not to be working. So tell us about the decisions around technology. Yeah, and you know, just part of it is is ethos, maintaining the ethos, because Wi-Fi in a 30s resort don't really match, right? And we have had a lot of a lot of responses about not having that connectivity to the outside world and like mothers thanking us for the family reconnected. We did a puzzle together instead of kids going off into the different rooms and and doing different things and looking at their, you know, their handheld devices all the time. Occasionally we get people who aren't happy with that. 
Um, but for the mo- vast majority, we'll have people say, wow, this was a great experience. It kind of changed what it meant to be together on vacation with a family again. And we have competitors, right, who have Wi-Fi and TV sets and all sorts of things. So it's not like that option isn't available on Orcus. Right. You told me a great story about the type of vehicles that people drive. It was one of your uncles? It was my dad. Tell, or your dad? From, Tell from, us a story. Because we're rustic and because we kind of have a flavor that's that's ours and limited things we offer, we have over the years had guests who'd come down and they really should have gone to Rosario where they have all the pampering and you know room service and all those sorts of things. So dad always used to say, Whenever I see a Cadillac drive down the drive and it's a new car, new guests, I always get tense because they're going to expect something different. I'd really rather see a Plymouth or a Chevy drive down the, the road. We ask our guests to bring in something to share, and you had something to share, which is, it looked like a plate. Yeah. So this plate, it's interesting. It's a little window into kind of some of our family history. Um, my grandmother, she she had inherited some money in the 30s, early 30s, and decided, let's formalize this idea of having a beach resort. Before then, we had tent cabins, and we were still partially an orchard. And, well, okay, let's, let's dive into hospitality. What do you need? Well, back then, you needed a central eating area and you needed cabins. So we built, within the space of a year or two, six more cabins, and we built this lodge. Um, And my grandmother wanted to pattern it after a Scottish hunting lodge, a roadside tavern. And so even though it was prohibition and you couldn't drink, for some reason, we thought it would be a great idea to call it North Beach Tavern. And so we got the building built, we got all these plates done, all the serviceware, we were ready to go. Well, within, I think, that first year, perhaps we had some Canadian visitors, the story goes, and they came down and were very unhappy that we couldn't serve alcohol and we were a tavern, like we were misrepresenting ourselves. So I believe within a year, we changed the name of our business to North Beach Inn. But because the plates were so expensive, and I imagine we'd spent all our money, we kept the plates. And so the plates my whole life, until we stopped serving in probably about 84, 85, we just served on North Beach Tavern plates. Well, we've talked about the past. Let's talk a little bit about the present and future of the island. So what are the challenges that you see facing the island itself? Probably the biggest issue is housing, worker housing. And so that does impact us quite a bit. It's very hard to find a place to stay, a place to live for a working class family or any family almost on the island. It's um, very popular. It's kind of the Martha's Vineyard of Washington State, and you get a lot of people with second homes and things like that. Well, the the amount of homes that are available to working class people has gone down and down, and the number of Airbnbs and VRBOs, well, I have nothing against them. They're, they are competitors, but... You know, it's free market economy. That's that's fine, but also it, it is a problem because there's no place for people to live that are actually doing the work. And on an island, it's not like you can just commute from no. from a suburb, right? You no, know. the ferries being expensive, it takes a long time. They're late. 
due to weather or staffing issues or mechanical issues. They're older ferries now. And so you kind of have to be self-sustaining to a large effect on Orcas Island. So we asked our guests to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest. And my request to you is that it's a place that's off-island. If you can share a place that you really care about that isn't the North Beach and Orcas Island, because I can see that's core to you, who you are. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, my family's favorite places to visit are beachfront cabins in other locations. And I think it's because we really love the environment of being beachfront and having ocean and water nearby and having a self-contained rustic little cabin just feels kind of who we are and it's really enjoyable for us. So we have probably our top place locally is Woodby Island. Just south of the Coopville Ferry, there's a stretch of beach that has a number of houses on it, cabins on it that's really neat. And you can fish out front and you can go to Fort Casey that's a great place. Uh, Fort Warden is one of our favorite places to go over in Port Townsend. We like to stay in the um, the enlisted officers' housing over there. I didn't know that there was that was an option. So yeah, it's really neat and it's really cool. There's the officers' housing, which is kind of bigger, fancier houses, and then there's a smaller area where they had the sergeant's housing and the corporal's housing, and it's duplexes. And the really cool thing for me and my wife as a historian is that it hasn't been upgraded that much. There's still tin ceilings and uh, the banisters are the original banisters and the porches are original. So that, again, that's very similar to what we want to keep doing at North Beach Inn is continue that, that vibe, that old school. This is how it was. This is when when you step in this building, you're stepping back in time. So is there anything odd, strange, or funny over the years? The strangest thing that happened is we survived to the fourth generation. And one of the things I did years ago when I knew it was going to be handed off to me soon was I read some books on succession planning and small family businesses, which is a really unique area of business study, right? And it said that they've done studies that say that the second generation there's a 50% chance of it making it to the second generation. There's like a six to 10% chance of making it to the third generation. So that we've made it to the third, going on the fourth or going on the fifth, however you kind of look at that is, it's quite remarkable. It really is almost miraculous in my mind and it would outshine any, you know, I I can't share any murders or conspiracies or anything with you um, that have happened there, just nothing Nothing dramatic, but I think that's our ethos. You're obviously retired, but you are coming back, you know, working your butt off. So why is it that you work so hard for this place? Yeah, I've just been really developing a vision for stewardship for the family business and for the property. And I almost hate to call it property for the land. Yeah, I'm sorry for using that word. Yeah. Um, Well, it is in the eyes of the government. 
So <laughs> it's technically defined as property, but if you're thinking in stewardship terms, it's not really property, it's just land. But for years, I was trying to develop a mission statement, a personal mission statement, not necessarily speaking for the, all the owners. But I, I tried to write something up and I could not encapsulate it in a traditional business written three paragraphs business statement. I got a vision of an apple tree one day and it fit because we're an orchard, right? And the land is the land or the property, however you want to describe it. And the orchard tree, the most important thing that supports is the trunk. So the trunk is the business and it has branches on it. And we've got the family, of course, and we've got the guests or guest family and the workers, worker family. We've got neighbors who, neighbors are very important to us. And I think they've lost some of their their meaning in today's culture. But when you have neighbors who are generational as well, and you've known their parents or their grandparents, it's it's significant. And then the community. Um, and then it, this, again, is my personal perspective, and we're not a, a religious organization or anything, but I, I like the word blessing. And I really feel that's applicable, that we're blessing these branches. And these branches are like an apple tree. They need to be in balance, and they need to be nourished. And when that happens, they grow fruit, right? And so it's really kind of fun in my mind to think thousands of guests are coming up and getting some fruit of this place where they can rejuvenate and relax and just get away from the world. And it's it's a way to, like a ripple, when you throw a rock into a pond, the ripples go out and they go all over the place. My hope is that when people come up and they can relax and just open up to their own thoughts and things, They'll be able to relax and take that back to Seattle. I'm a Seattleite. I know what Seattle's like. I know the rat race. And you you don't get this experience of touching nature, of having an otter run past your house, of eagles in the trees, goats in the pens, trees you can touch. So you mentioned neighborliness as one of the branches of your tree, and you also mentioned that that's something that is kind of given short shrift in today's age. I wanted to talk with you about your perspective there. Having had neighbors and grown through generations with neighbors nearby, can you share what you've learned, what neighborliness means to you? Yeah, you really need to develop relationships with neighbors and open communication and so often we get defensive with neighbors, right? And you go straight to, you know, defending yourself or some neighbors will hire lawyers when they have boundary line issues. I learned from earlier experiences that you should just be proactive, develop a relationship with your neighbor and be just really open and honest. And and recently we resolved um, with new neighbors a boundary line issue that had been ongoing since 1911, since when we when we purchased the property and we both agreed that the neighbor relationship is way more important than this slice of property. And in the end it worked out great because we worked with each other and you get through that whole anxiety of possession and are they getting a better deal than I am? And you end up with good neighbor relationships. So 
So it's really hard to get in, particularly during the season. So at the beginning of our show, I mentioned for those of the guests that stick around, they could maybe hear how they could do that. How can our listeners become a guest at the North Beach Inn? What would the steps be? Knowing that it's oftentimes booked, you know, years in advance. Yeah. Well, a great way to do that is get on our wait list. So if you call our main phone number or send us an email, you can put on a wait list. And when there's an opening, and there are occasionally openings, even in the summer, people have things come up. And we'll send out a broadcast and sort of a first come, first serve sort of thing. And we are adding a few new cabins. And so things will open up a little bit. Um, shoulder season is often a great time. April's getting pretty full, but there are a few times in, in May and late September, early October can be really nice. So if you want to kind of get your foot in the door and see if you like it, see if it resonates with you. The stay requirements are shorter. Um, the choice is, is broader and the weather's still often very good. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. Again, having been a guest of yours for so many years, it's really nice to learn why I like being there so much. Yeah. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Join us next time when our guest will be Tim Person president of Ray Gibson's Caballeros Club in Tacoma, Washington. Founded in 1957 by two African-American men with a vision of a club owned by its members with space for conferences, meetings, dancing, and dining. And in 1962, they acquired a property with a tiny house and iconic views of Mount Rainier. And then 10 years later, the growing membership transformed the space under the theme, you've got a hammer, I've got a saw. After 14 members mortgaged their homes to fund construction of the club as we know it today. And from the moment you step through the door, you'll feel history oozing from the walls. Members of Tacoma's African-American community have rubbed elbows downstairs at the bar for generations. They've socialized, organized charitable projects and picnics, enjoyed great food and drinks, as well as dancing, thanks to a rotating array of disc jockeys. Currently enjoying an expansion of membership and celebrating its 65th anniversary, The Cab invites you to become guests for a day by tuning in to the next episode of Power of Place to hear stories of Tacoma's hallowed Ray Gibson's Caballeros Club. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour and theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grant Hallway. With additional music written by Andrew Weathers as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories.